we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. We are up to episode 89. It's the 28th of March, 2017. A very special episode because with me is an old friend from a long, long time ago, Alex Bruce. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Trevor. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me on, and it's great to see you again. Yeah. So Alex is um, talking to us all the way from Oxford uh, via Skype. And uh, as many of you know, dear listener, I, uh, I was a practicing lawyer. Before that, I had to get a law degree, obviously. And one of the first people I met uh, was Alex <laughs> Bruce sitting outside the library. And um, he did law with me. And we kept in contact for a few years afterwards. But I, I probably haven't spoken to you, Alex, for about 25 years, possibly, mm. Um, mm. as life sent us in different directions. And now, thanks to Facebook... We're, uh, we're able to communicate and find each other again. Yeah, wonderful. But de- dear listener, with the nature of my podcast here, with you know, looking at religion, looking at ethics, and uh, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, Trevor's just dragged up one of his old mates to fill in a bit of time, and, <laughs> and who is this Alex Bruce character? <laughs> and has he got any relevance at all to a secular podcast? And uh, I'll just read you some of uh, Alex's biography from the uh, Australian National University. Uh, Venerable Alex Bruce is a Buddhist monk and associate professor with a number of research interests. Alex, you've written books on animals and the law and competition law. And in addition, you have a research profile in comparative theology, particularly Mm. focused on Buddhism and Christianity. Uh, You created and moderated the 2007 Inter-Religious Symposium with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And you're a regular speaker at comparative theology conferences and inter-religious dialogue initiatives, both throughout Australia and internationally. And from October 2016, you've been in Oxford uh, doing a Doctorate of Philosophy in Theology, correct? Mm, Yeah, comparative theology, that's right. Alex, (laughs) what have you been doing the last 25 years? I know, I know, I know it's... Seems a long way away from <laughs> from uh, from law school, isn't it? Um, it does. But uh, yeah, even even when I was at law school, Trevor, I was um, I was pretty interested in sort of life, the universe, and everything sort of things. And mm. I was particularly interested in in Buddhism, even at that time. And um, when when we had sort of uni breaks, I would often go up to a Buddhist monastery in Queensland in Udlow, the Chenrezig Institute, and I would spend a week there doing meditation and learning elementary Buddhist philosophy and that sort of thing. And I kept up an interest even after law school and while working in Sydney with the Competition Commission and other places, I used to go to Buddhist centres in, in Sydney. And eventually, about 15 years ago, I got finally got ordained as a monk. I decided this was going to be something I wanted to pursue in a much more detail in a much more sophisticated kind of way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to devote my, my life to it, but not just to developing Buddhist principles or Buddhist philosophy, but also to interreligious uh, dialogue. So I put myself back through 
university and got a master's degree in, in Christian theology. It's from the Australian Catholic University. I spent time in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, I organized a symposium and um, <clears throat> then His Holiness the Dalai Lama suggested that I try and um, develop a, a bit of a deeper uh, ability to c- contribute worldwide to this sort of thing. And um, as it happened, Oxford University said, yeah, come on over and do all this research with us here. And uh, so I'd, <laughs> I'd sort of now, I'm now consolidating my, all this research and all this work I've been doing over the last um, 10 years right. uh, into yeah. to work let's, here. Let's just backtrack a bit. So yeah, uh, yeah. The, the theology that you did, first of all, at Catholic University, wasn't it? At the, the ACU, the Australian Catholic University, yeah. Right. So, um, so what did that involve? Was that... <laughs> Because to be honest, Alex, I've I've poo pooed a few theologists over time because of course uh, sometimes they strike me as indoctrination sort of high level indoctrination classes just based mm. on the statements that these people come out with mm. who have, mm. have these qualifications. So uh, was yours? I mean, at the time you were a, a you know a Buddhist. Um, yes. So you probably I was a weren't susceptible. Okay, you weren't. And you, but you probably weren't mm. susceptible to a to. So, so I was studying Christianity in the sense of just understanding it, and, and, and the other people doing the course were they like school chaplains or who who what sort of people yeah, were doing sure. with you? It was a yeah, it was a real mix. It was a it was a postgraduate um, course, so it was a master's degree right. in theology. In theology, okay. and so there were all kinds of people. There were there were um, postgrad students who were twenty five and who were looking to become teachers of theology in schools or religious education teachers. There were chaplains in hosp- from hospitals and prisons who were who were doing things, and then there were also um, some retirees um, who <clears throat> were returning to um, visit the fundamentals of what they'd been taught when they were little kids. And, mm-hmm. and then there were oddballs, oddball creatures like me who were just sort of floating yes. in. From, uh, so we had a Sikh, uh, uh, we had a Muslim, and of course me as a Buddhist monk. And we, were, yeah, we, were, we all sort of rubbed along really well. And ha- happily, though, there was, um, there was none of this kind of indoctrination that you, uh, you might have um, encountered. It was, it was very much a... Here's here's what the um, tradition suggests. Here are some different perspectives on it all, and here's here's what um, this this particular view is. Here's what that particular view is, and um, go away, research, and tell us what you think about it all. So right. It was a it was a very much um, the emphasis was very much on uh, understanding a broad variety of perspectives on a particular topic, and then coming to a reasoned conclusion of what you thought about those perspectives. Right, and the teachers were. Um, <coughs> what sort of people were teaching? Were they, were they oh, clergy yeah. or, or no? No. Or um, uh, actually, there was only one uh, priest I think who was uh, was one of my lecturers, and he was um, actually teaching about Hindu theology of all things. Right. <laughs> and right. uh, yeah, uh, and the, but the rest were um, just secular, um, ordinary, everyday kind of kind of people. Yeah. So, had you been brought up in a Christian um, tradition? Had you gone to Christian schools, and were your parents Christian? Yeah, yeah. I um, I was brought up. Um, well, my, my mother's Catholic, so I was brought up in a Catholic, uh, the Catholic tradition, went to Catholic schools, Maris Brothers, that sort of thing. My father, though, he's, he's not, um, he's sort of notionally Christian. He sort of labels himself a, an eighth-day opportunist rather than anything sort of else. Right. So he, he, he takes a fairly sort of agnostic sort of view of it all. It was a, a Catholic um, home or Catholic tradition in sort of name only. We went to Mass 
Christmas and Easter and but it wasn't um, anywhere uh, it wasn't a fundamentalist or a devotional sort of household it was yeah. just a very normal everyday kind of thing and in fact when I was at school this was during sort of the mid 1970s late 1970s to the sort of 1980s this was after the Second Vatican Council and it was just a, a shambles to be honest the religious education that we got mm. consisted of guitar rock masses beanbags and candles and uh, interpretive dance liturgies it was a, just a time of wild <laughs> it was just crazy I, I, I left I left knowing nothing actually just absolutely nothing Right. Yeah. So after doing the theology course, yeah, uh, you weren't convinced to become Christian. I mean, it wasn't persuasive to you at all. <clears throat> have they have the Christians oh. got it wrong, Alex? What's <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I think. Um, I think we have to adopt a bit of a posture of humility. This side of the veil, I don't think we, anyone can really say this is what the absolute truth is, or this is what's right and that's what's wrong. Yes. I think uh, that's that's the cause, as you've rightly pointed out on other occasions. I think that's the cause of great uh, distress in the world when someone says, "We're the best. Ours is the only way. You convert or die." Yes. You know, that's 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 an absolute tragedy. Um, there are some really attractive elements of Christianity, as there are some really attractive elements of other religions. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I uh, firmly believed in the the tenets of uh, the Buddhist philosophy. And um, so you, you can't sort of, uh, as the Tibetans say, you can't put a, a yak's head on a sheep's body. So I yes. couldn't really, couldn't so, really comfortably blend both. So I made my choice. So we'll get into the uh, the tin tacks of Buddhist philosophy. But could, oh, can yeah. you, as a Buddhist, accept that Jesus was the Son of God and and the <laughs> basic tenets of the Christian faith? Or do you, as a Buddhist, now say, well, actually, I just don't think that's right? Like, can you, <clears throat> can you, yeah, what, what, what view do you have there? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I have to distinguish between what the Buddhist view is and what my personal view is, because yep. my personal view is actually quite uh, complicated. And it's one of the personal reasons I'm over here in Oxford trying to sort out what I actually think. Uh, and But the, the official sort of the Buddhist view is, of course, um, that there, the creative principle is karma. There, God, there is no sort of creator God who calls people into a relationship with God. There is no soul that God has created and put into humans. Um, Buddhism uh, accepts the concept of rebirth, whereby um, people, their sort of consciousness takes rebirth again and again, conditioned by karma uh, through this endless sort of cycle. And so, in that in that kind of metaphysical context, there is no there is no linear one life at the end of which you you hopefully attain union with God in in heaven. So there are some very fundamental incompatibilities between Christianity and Buddhism. And part of my research here in Oxford is to sort of disentangle um, more recent attempts by people to suggest that. You know, it's, all religions are the same. We're sort of all climbing to the same top of the mountain by different paths, so to mm. speak. Yeah. But the reality is when you when you really are honest and get down into the texts and the, the traditions, and I guess this is my lawyer side, my lawyer training coming out, mm. uh, you actually find the vast, vast differences um, that you, you can't you can't say Buddhism is an early form of Christianity. You can't say that Christianity is a, a sort of a a different form of Buddhism. They're very, very different. Yes. So, so that's the Buddhist uh, view that you outlined, and then your own personal one dif- <laughs> differs <coughs> in any respect. From oh, that. oh, Trevor. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, look. One of the as I sort of get older, mate. The um, one of the principles I just adhere to time 
and again is that the more I know, the less I know. What I mean is to say that what I thought I knew, I didn't really know. I didn't know enough to know what I didn't know. Yes. And I'm trying to adopt a sort of a position of a little bit of um, uh, humility or a precautionary principle by saying, look, I, I can't say for certain that this is true, but all my research and my feeling is that X is true or Y is true, but I'm open to open to um, arguments differently or open to, right. to insights. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. So, it's, so it's much you'd, more complicated. You'd follow the orthodox doctrine of buddhism to say that it's incompatible with christianity but you'd take the view hey i don't know everything and somebody might come up with a really great explanation which i've never heard of that that can that's exactly the two together and good luck to them yeah right but but trevor look the reality is that uh, you know i don't think about this sort of stuff on a day-to-day kind of basis i mean otherwise i'd never get any of my washing done or anything uh, but so the reality is that there's enough in there's enough in Buddhism and there's enough in Christianity for us to work on on a day-to-day basis to make ourselves better people without having to tie ourselves up in knots about whether emptiness is the metaphysical, ontological, existential, supernatural, you know, whatever. Yes. yes. Yep. Yeah. So um, the the so you follow a a, a Tibetan Buddhism mm. as as sort of outlined by the Dalai Lama. Like all religions, you've got your various sects and differences amongst them. <laughs> yeah, so that's the yeah. one that you're aligning with mostly. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've got in front of me, Alex, I've got yep. uh, Religions of the World, the Illustrated Guide, and I've, I've opened it up on, uh, on the Buddhism page, and it says uh-huh. uh, there are four noble truths and an eightfold path. Does that all sound oh, yes. correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to just tell the listener here that uh, yeah, Four Noble Truths. Uh, the first one is suffering exists. The second one is there is a reason for suffering. The third one is there is a way to end suffering. And the fourth is the way to end suffering is through the Eightfold Path. Is that all correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep. All, all Buddhist traditions, yeah. whether they're Thai, Thai, Cambodian, Bhutan, Japan, China, Tibetan, all Buddhist traditions in the world would subscribe to the um, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Right, and that's and that's uh, the, one of the basics of the religion. So then on the Eightfold Path, we've got, number one, right views, knowing and understanding the Four Noble Truths that I've just mm-hmm. outlined. Uh, right thoughts, letting go of want and desire and acting with kindness to avoid hurting anything. <clears throat> that, yeah. From the outsider, that sounds like a key plank of... Oh, yes. Of yes, Buddhism, absolutely. ...is this letting go of want and desire. Did you want to finish the, the overview before we go into okay, the okay, details? I'll do that. You think that'd be best? I'll go through the three yeah. of them then. Uh, right speech, yeah. telling the truth, speaking kindly and wisely. We'll get on to section 18C in relation to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, number four, right action, not stealing or cheating. Number five, right livelihood, earning a living that does not cause bloodshed or harm to others. Uh, number six, right effort, encouraging and developing positive thought in order to keep to the path. Number seven, right mindfulness, being aware of thoughts and actions that affect the world right now and in the future. And number Mm -hmm. eight, right concentration. This is the peaceful state of mind which arises through correct practice of the eightfold path. All all good, so... Yeah, more, there, more, Alex. (laughs) More, yeah, more or less. uh, Yeah, that's more or less um, accurate. Um, uh, So, so the Buddhism. 
Buddhism, Buddhism started with, uh, like, like Christianity, I suppose, it started with the insights of a particular person. Mm. And the particular person in the case of Buddhism was um, this fellow who lived 2,500 years ago, Siddhartha Gautama, sort of lived on the border of Nepal and India. And he was born into a, um, a fairly wealthy family, but he, uh, when he was um, a, young, a young man, he became a little bit disenchanted with the sort of seclusion that his father had um, placed him in, sort of sheltered him a bit from the, the harsh realities of life. I mean, life really was um, brutish, nasty and short back then. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was a fairly difficult time before medicine, before the germ theory, all these sorts of things. Anyway, so uh, he was thrown into a bit of an existential crisis when one day he sort of defied his father's wishes like most boys at some time um, and went outside and saw an old person, a sick person, a corpse, and then a wandering holy man. So the tradition says that um, he encountered these four sites and that sort of led him to question, well, what the hell is all this about? Why, am I going to grow old, get sick, die? Am my family going to do this? What's, what's the – this is terrible. And so he decided he would try to find some kind of reason or answer for this, for this sort of diseased state of life. And he – then renounced his life and took off and became a bit of a wandering ascetic. He practiced fairly strictly um, austerities and all kinds of um, hardships uh, before almost killing himself, I think, with, uh, with these austerities. And he realized this wasn't really getting him anywhere. Mm-hmm. He was nowhere closer to the insights. And so he decided that he would uh, practice what he called a, a middle way he decided that what he would just, do is just to... before you go on, Alex, it, it wasn't yeah. uncommon in ancient times for people to sort of take a tough life approach and become, well, they mightn't have been called a monk, but in ancient Greece and that, is that right? That this was something that, that people did do sometimes? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the first guy to get this idea of sort oh, of abstaining. Yeah, right. and, I mean, I can recall from the life of Brian, there was a guy in a pit, you know, and he's... <laughs> We got very upset when his juniper bushes yeah. were attacked. I mean, yeah, there, that's there, it. That was something that people did do. He wasn't the first guy to think yeah, of this, was he? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're quite right. They, uh, at the time of the Buddha, two thousand five hundred years ago, there were what they what they called the Shramana tradition. These were kind of wandering ascetics who sort of mm. tried through different means to find the ultimate meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And uh, the experience in India was repeated pretty much all over the kind of world. You didn't quite have the same um, emphasis in ancient Greece because they had never really developed a sort of uh, religious tradition so much as a philosophical tradition. Yeah. You did have kind of Stoics and you, uh, in Greeks, but you, the kind of bloke that you saw in uh, in Life of Brian, um, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you certainly had ascetics. You certainly had ascetics like that, and so. At the time of Jesus, for example, there was a quite um, strict Jewish sect, the Essenes, who lived in the desert. And since Christianity, of course, um, you've had the desert fathers and mothers tradition, which led into and developed into contemporary monasticism. So you sort of, you do have a very early, across most cultures, a sort of desire to renounce the world, as it were, all the trappings and things, and to try to um, lead a, a life unalloyed to desire fame and excess and to try to achieve some kind of um, existential peace and insight mm, mm. definitely keep, keep going so to interrupt so he, he he's oh yeah yeah so he, this yeah. idea <laughs> and yeah he decided uh, he was going to sit down and uh he was going to um come 
come up with some kind of insight. He entered into some very deep meditation and he came up with um, these insights that he, he sort of achieved in the course of a, a sort of an evening. The first was that, which seems pretty unremarkable really, his life is full of suffering. But the word suffering is an English word and of course he didn't speak English. Um, and so the word that's been translated is, is dukkha. And dukkha actually means something like um, dissatisfactory or dis- um, having the quality of dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. What that meant was uh, the suffering that he observed wasn't just the kind of gross, coarse, physical suffering that we all experience and everyone experiences, but also the more subtle changes in emotions, the ups and downs that we all feel, and also the fact that things change so much that what was considered pleasurable can become a source of suffering. You know, you, you sort of sit down all day after a hard day's work and that feels good until you will need to get up again, changes into suffering and you eat, you eat ice cream or drink Coca-Cola and um, it, it, uh, you drink enough of it, it no longer becomes pleasurable. So his insight was that things, things have, do not have the inherent capacity for lasting happiness. That was his, mm-hmm. one of his insights. His second insight was the second noble truth was there's a cause for this and his his reasoning was that what's causing us to experience a lot of this dissatisfaction is um, attachment or thirst or thana as it's called in the in the Pali. Thirst or attachment is when we sort of over-exaggerate the good qualities of something and think this is always going to make me happy mm-hmm. or we over-exaggerate the bad qualities of something and we think this is always going to make us um, unhappy. Instead, things just are and what we bring to it uh, and our experiences with it will determine our subjective experience of whether it's it's happy or sad or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he said, as a result of us always striving to um, seek pleasure, avoid pain, to seek praise, avoid blame, to um, uh, get a good name and to avoid um, uh, discontent and uh, all of that sort of thing, we continually create emotional ups and downs and physical ups and downs for ourselves that is a constant source of dissatisfaction. And he said, however, there is a way to, to get through that, to, to stop all of that. And that's the third noble truth, that there is this state whereby you can experience life in a way that is not subject to all these emotional and physical and things, ups and downs and things. And that way is the fourth noble truth, this eightfold path, <clears throat> which is divided into really three, they call ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And so, as you correctly, yeah. Before you go on, so yeah, yeah. he didn't like the ups and downs. Is, is there a risk that we're missing the ups because we're avoiding the downs? Like, another view is that... One of the criticisms of to, Buddhism, um, yeah. To, to enjoy life, you know, a full and meaningful yeah. life is one with ups and downs and the downs make the ups even more special. And while you don't want the downs, you yeah. you yeah. get them anyway. So, oh, of course, yeah. Is that... Is, so that is a criticism of Buddhism that he's uh, what I'm alluding to there? No, not really, because he actually wasn't saying we should become kind of emotional robots or sort of um, immune to these sorts of things. What he was saying was that we can enjoy things even more because we're no longer attached to the expectation that they should last because we think that they are permanent or somehow inherently capable of satisfying us, right. that we should love our, love our partners um, even um, un- more unselfishly because we shouldn't have expectations that they should cause us be our, our cause of happiness, for example. Or that um, when we experience um, tragedy, that we shouldn't um, drown ourselves in the sorrow of a tra- 
tragedy because it too will pass. Things things will pass. If we become attached to defining our sense of self-worth and happiness by reference to external things that are inherently impermanent, Mm -hmm. then we we run the risk of um, buying into a a cycle of ups and downs that is is really quite destructive. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, the Buddha and the Buddhist message is regarded as uh, liberating because it actually enables you to enjoy life much more richly because you can enjoy enjoy the things while they're here without the sort of expectation or subsequent disappointment that they so should it's, last. It's kind of of uh, being in the moment a bit more. Than yeah, that, it's a way. It's, is it? Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's a. Uh, Part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a yeah. You know, they talk about mindfulness, that sort of thing, and uh, you know, being mindful of um, the fact that sure, enjoy your your ice cream or your your movie or your you know whatever, but mm-hmm. um, don't be upset when um, don't don't get too in, don't get too upset when it finishes. Don't get, um, don't invest your sense of identity or self worth by reference to your car or your house or your job because these things change all the time. Try and develop a bit of inner peace and mindfulness, in a bit of resources to cope with these sorts of things. You'll be pleased to know I've got no arguments with Buddhism so far, Alex. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. Move, move on then. The the eightfold path you're saying is really three categories of. Things. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So there are three three sort of categories of things that are called ethics, concentration, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what they're saying, what you're trying to do, is develop wisdom and compassion. Actually, so you're trying to develop this sort of um, realistic insight into the way things work, into cause and effect, into what pushes your buttons, what drives you crazy, why your own contribution to your own craziness all that sort of all that sort of thing mm-hmm. but but we we rarely have a kind of lifestyle that allows us those those sort of deeper moments of introspection that kind of inner freedom to do that sort of thing and part of the reason is we don't have enough time to sort of really sit down and quieten the mind and to really concentrate and think through carefully these sorts of issues part of the reason that we don't have this kind of time and effort to sit down and think through these issues to concentrate on is because we lead quite a hectic sort of lifestyle you know we're constantly out and about doing sorts of things um so the first of these uh three divisions of the path they call their ethics and so what they're talking about there is um restraining restraining actions of body speech and mind that hurt yourself and other people um, and they traditionally say well you know don't kill don't steal don't engage in sexual misconduct, um, don't lie, uh, don't engage in uh, divisive speech, don't engage in idle speech, uh, and don't slander, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then they, they talk about um, don't extend ill will or sort of covetousness, that sort of greed, greedy mind sort of thing. And and then there are the flip sides of that, of course, respect life, honour, uh, honour, life don't don't seek seek to cherish life secondly um honor people's property don't destroy things be creative thirdly uh, honor people's um sexual integrity honor people's dignity for example on all different sorts of levels don't seek to um lie speak truthfully tell tell the truth develop uh, cultivate truthfulness um don't speak divisively to divide people seek to reconcile parties um who are at odds don't speak idly um you know don't uh, just waste your time in, in talking about the kardashians or god for sake god donald trump or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh we, we haven't mentioned kardashians on the podcast but we have we have talked about donald trump you know yeah, we're sure. guilty of that one yeah yeah the point the point is that um <clears throat> none of these things are things to be sort of believed because the buddha says they're true they're, they're sort of 
of like the virtue ethics tradition in the Greek yeah. philosophical tradition, which says you experiment with things, and what you'll find is that if you if you create a life that's based upon hostility. Um, division, anger, and greed—you're going to lead a pretty unhappy sort of life. Mm. Whereas if you if you consciously cultivate these these sorts of qualities, what you'll find is that your your life becomes just a lot calmer. You know, you're, you're no longer worried about someone coming up and smacking you in the head out of revenge, or you're no longer worried about the police coming to get you, or you know, you just don't create so much drama in your life. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens? A strange thing happens is that when when you don't create so much drama in your life, you find your mind starts to become more peaceful. And as your mind becomes more peaceful, you can concentrate more. So that's the second of these third divisions of the eightfold path. You know, you, you can spend this time investigating if you want to um, these sort of issues of cause and effect, what pushes your buttons, how reality works. And then what you notice as you concentrate and think about these things, you, your insight into things deepens a bit. You start to have these kind of aha moments where you see, oh, yeah, that's why this person did that. That's why I reacted to this. And the effect of that is to deepen your wisdom. And as a result, that then feeds back, that feeds back into your um, sort of ethics as you become more… You've got more knowledge to build on and to increase your… Yeah capacity to understand things yep so it's kind of like this um, spiral ascending spiral or descending spiral if you're the other other way inclined Mm -hmm. and and, and so was that the three yeah that's the three ethics concentration and wisdom yeah ultimately yeah so all of that alex um uh live in the moment and 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 be a good mindful citizen um Mm. all sounds very good what about the sort of more supernatural aspects to Buddhism? The supernatural aspects? To, yeah. And what, what, what sort of do you mean by that? Well, the reincarnation. Um, oh, yes, right, and, right, right. And uh, that side of things, yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, what about it? What do you want to know? So what, what is the belief that, that oh, okay, uh, yeah, on right. your death you, you – um, I understand that you are trying – through your various lives to to reach a, a higher or better state of being, and eventually you reach a state where you don't where you're done and dusted. You don't need to come back. Is that right? You're done and dusted. Got your stamp. Graduated. That sort of thing. Is that yeah. true? Have I got that right um, or wrong? Yeah, you know, it's kind of. Um, so there there are two broad Buddhist traditions in the world. If you, if you really want to sort of characterize it this way so you've kind of got the the form of buddhism that's practiced in southeast asian countries like sri lanka um vietnam cambodia bhutan uh, sorry um uh, burma or uh, myanmar as it now is that sort of thing and then you've got the kind of northern buddhist countries like bhutan nepal tibet china japan now all of those countries, all Buddhists around the world subscribe to these Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path that we've just spoken about. But the one, the one, there is a major division in terms of what we're trying to achieve as a result of following this path. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the southern Buddhist schools, which are commonly termed the Theravada tradition, or Theravada tradition, which is a, an older, the, probably more closer to the original Buddha really, I think. Mm-hmm. Their purpose is to seek wisdom in order to escape um, rebirth, having to come back again and again through through reincarnation, as it were. Right. The northern Buddhist schools uh, also seek that, but 
They also say there is a point beyond that called enlightenment. And the motivation for seeking enlightenment is said to be to help all other sentient beings. So the major division really consists in um, the southern schools attempting to achieve liberation from cyclic existence or rebirth for oneself alone, Mm -hmm. and uh, whereas the northern schools tend to um, seek the state of enlightenment in order to help all other sentient beings achieve the same end. So there is a a kind of what they call bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment. Right. Now – yeah. So the Dalai Lama himself, yeah. he he could choose to come back in another life or yep. not. Is that right? He has a choice because he has reached this state that uh, Yeah, well the, Yeah, 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 the Tibetans. Yeah, yeah. So it's um so we, one of the implications of all of this philosophy is that uh in so while you are still kind of un, unenlightened, as it were, hmm. your karma just keeps propelling you back into rebirth. So they say that your consciousness, so they, they talk about not a soul, but they talk about a consciousness. And consciousness is kind of like um, a stream of thoughts and patterns, habits, dispositions, that sort of thing. These, this, this energetic patterning, this energetic consciousness continues after death, they say, Buddhists say. And the form in which that consciousness manifests after death depends on the karma, what you've created for yourself. In other words, if you have led a life that is consistently aggressive, angry, hostile, um, hurtful, harmful, whatever, mm-hmm. then the form in which your consciousness takes rebirth is consistent with those dominant dispositions. So don't be surprised if you're reborn, according to Buddhists, as some kind of um, fighting animal or some kind of warring human or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, both – so with the Dalai Lama's situation, which is a Mahayana tradition, they say that – Certain people, after they have achieved a a kind of enlightened state, are no longer propelled um, unconsciously back into a rebirth. They can choose to to take rebirth out of compassion for other people and to show, to teach, to show them how to um, how to achieve a similar sort of thing. And the Tibetans, the Tibetans believe this is the case with the present Dalai Lama. The present Dalai Lama is the fourteenth Dalai Lama in the Tibetan tradition, Mm -hmm. and the Tibetans believe that. He has been reincarnated 14 times and he chooses to do so to, out of great compassion for people to teach them and to show them how to lead a kinder, wiser sort of life, but he is not compelled to do so. Right. And uh, now, on his death, how yeah. is a new uh, Dalai Lama um, appointed? Yeah, it's a lotto. No, no, it's um. They, <laughs> no, Are they, you in the uh, running, Alex? No, 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 not at all. No, they um. There's quite a complicated and culture-bound sort of tradition, and this is the other thing about Buddhism, Trevor, is that um, you know, wherever it's gone, like everything, whatever culture it's encountered, from Sri Lanka through to Tibet, I mean, it's it's adapted to the culture, and so there yes. there are cultural accretions. Um, that overlay the fundamental philosophy. And you, you, and, you and I have been talking about the kind of um, bedrock fundamental philosophy. And so what we're now talking about is a kind of cultural accretion over the top of that. Um, so the way that they choose the Dalai Lama has come down through their centuries 
as a quite a, an interesting process whereby, and I've, I've actually seen this in the case of not the Dalai Lama, but in another another Lama. Uh, so uh, typically with the Dalai Lama, as he's approaching death, um, he will leave certain signs or indications about whether and where he'll be reborn. And so in the case of the 13th Dalai Lama before this one, he um, apparently on his death, his head turned in a certain direction and there were certain symbols and signs that grew that indicated that he was going to be born in a certain area. So then what happens is they um, they get together a fairly high-level um, committee of lamas and they go and search for um, a three- or four-year-old child and they take with them all these things, so possessions belonging to the previous Dalai Lama mixed in with possessions, just everyday sort of possessions, so uh, you know, spectacles, a cup, a rosary, that kind of stuff. And then they'll go and visit this little kid. And this little kid um, will apparently do some quite amazing things. So with the case of the present Dalai Lama, when he was about four or so, um, he was presented with a tray of objects. And so there were you know, three or four spectacles, walking sticks, that kind of thing. And he, he said, yeah, this is mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And he picked them all out belonging to the, the previous Dalai Lama. Right. He also, he also recognised members of the search party he said oh yeah yeah because the search party went in disguise as traders yes. and uh he, he said oh yeah no you're not a trader you're a, a, you know you're this particular abbot from this particular monastery that, that kind of thing right so it was quite quite spectacular I've, I've seen it on a slightly lesser scale whereby a young a young tibetan um monk he picked out all these items that he said belonged to him quite accurately in a previous life including false teeth Right. <laughs> it's 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 we're dealing here we're dealing here with really quite esoteric sorts of things that um uh yeah are, are quite uh i can't really explain them trevor i i you know yeah it's quite it's quite interesting fascinating fascinating yeah. so they yeah. go to a village in a certain direction based on where the dalai lama was looking or certain symbols yeah, that some sort of sign, some sort of sign yeah. or indication, yeah. And then the local uh, monks, or whatever, would say, "Well, there's this boy over here in this village who seems to be showing some sort of signs. Go and check him out." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, there'll be there'll be some pretty pretty interesting sorts of signs. So um, this this little kid that I saw, you know, from the age of about two or three, he insisted he was not. He, he insisted he came from another monastery and he wanted to go back to finish his work. I mean, it's just, it's just right. very, it's very strange. Mm. Mm. So, well, while we're on the topic of the Dalai Lama then, so you've had some... Yeah, yeah. What, 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 you, what, what's your initial... You've had some dealings with him very personally by the sounds of it. Is that right? Or Yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been pretty lucky. Um, he, uh, I organised a big interreligious sort of um, symposium in at the ANU, the National University, in 2007 and... Um, mm. I, uh, sounds like a bit of a joke. I had a, a rabbi, a priest, and a monk walk into a bar, walked into a stage, <laughs> and I had I had them at a big interreligious symposium, and I had some time with the Dalai Lama then, and yep. I wrote a, a little book, and he, he launched the book at a, the 2009 Parliament of the World's Religions, and um, he also uh, <laughs> he also suggested I come to Oxford, and he, he wrote a letter actually uh, in support of me coming to Oxford. And uh, they, Oxford thought it was a forgery, so they checked. Right. <laughs> uh, it was very funny. 
So did he? So he actually suggested you go to Oxford. Had you been thinking about it, or was it his suggestion that got you there? No, I'd, I'd been. I'd, I'd actually enrolled in a, a, a doctorate in Australia through um, Monash, but I also had a Australian Research Council grant at the same time, and there was a obscure bylaw of the Research Council rules that said you couldn't also simultaneously be a, a higher degree research student and hold an ARC grant. So I had to mm-hmm. ditch the, the doctorate. Mm-hmm. And then friends said, oh, look, you know, you should, you, should, you know, this is really good stuff. You should think about Oxford, which is where the experts are in the, the fields that I'm writing. Mm. And I said, yeah, right, sure. Mm. <laughs> you know, and then, um, uh, yeah, it just all accelerated very quickly. They, I contacted someone at Oxford and said, yeah, look, you know, don't, don't trouble yourself, but when you've got some time, have a, maybe have a look at this. Wow, this is really good. Come and do blah, 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 blah. And right. So then, then um, uh, because I'd had an association with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama has a, a centre over here in Oxford. And I said, you know, is it a good idea to do this? Yeah, 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 good, 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 go and do it. And he wrote a letter. As I said, he wrote a letter in support. And, yeah. And they, as I said, they, they thought it was a bit of a forgery. <laughs> so they, they had to check it. Right. And just to recap, the, the Doctorate of Philosophy is on trying to uh, look at the compatibility of Christianity and, uh, and Buddhism. Is that right? Or can the two coexist? Uh, well, or? Yeah, well, there's this strange phenomena that's been occurring over the last 20 years. I've noticed this sort of personally as I've travelled the world talking at law conferences and stuff. People saying they are both Buddhist and Christian, for example. Christians who say they're both Buddhist and Christian, and you can do that. You can sort of blend them, so they say. But I, I don't think you can um, to some degree. I, I think that they're very, very different sorts of things. Right. And so I'm over here, I'm over here sorting, through, sorting through all of these claims and, and writing about how at a very deep level they're very, very different things. But we can sort of learn from each other at certain, at certain levels. One of my issues, Alex, is that when we talk about uh, Muslims or Christians or whatever, mm. it's such a broad term, and yet yeah. the practice that people have within uh, their religion can, can be completely different. So, yeah. know, typically we've used it with, uh, with with the Jews and Judaism, where we talk about you know a social or a cultural Jew, mm-hmm. and um, going all the way up to Orthodox and. Mm. Mm. It seems to me that, you know, if somebody says, uh, well, you know, I'm Christian, well, you've really got to um, sort of burrow down through a few rabbit holes yeah. to see exactly what sort of Christian they are. And the yeah, same with that's right. uh, Islam. And, yeah. you know, you've got cultural, you've got, uh, um, well, I call them sort of a cherry pickers to some extent. Oh, yeah. people will just take bits and pieces that they like yeah. and discard others. Uh, yeah, moving yeah. up, you've got people who are more conservative, sort of by the book, sort of practitioners, yep. Yep. and yeah, then you get right. to your extremist hardcore yeah. uh, versions. <laughs> what does that extremist hardcore Buddhist look like, Alex? Is it what? Would, what I don't know. Hardcore right. extreme in Buddhism. Well, Buddhism. I don't know. I, because because Buddhism is so concerned about this sort of ethics concentration and wisdom, this sort of eightfold path sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they a Buddhist extremist doesn't it, it doesn't kind of make sense. You wouldn't really find them. What you do find, though, as in all religious traditions, you do sometimes find um, Buddhists who confuse or conflate the Buddhist 
cultural message with nationalism. Yes. And so this this is the problem in um, Myanmar at the moment with the Rohingyas, you know, where there's Buddhist violence against the Rohingya uh, Muslims, for example, yes. or the indigenous Rohingyas. So you, you do find um, Buddhists who say that their violence is justified on the basis of preservation of cultural traditions. But the reality is, as the Dalai Lama and other just about every other Buddhist leader has said that's a sort of a contradiction in terms. You can't, you can't have that. In fact, if you really dig down into a lot of these conflicts, what you find is that religions just being alloyed to nationalism or greed or some sort of um, ethnic hatred or some other, some other um, uh, sort of malignancy that's attached to it. Yes, they do get intertwined, culture and religion, and it, yeah, it's, it's difficult <clears throat> to untangle them and decide yeah. which is which uh, yeah, that's in certain right. circumstances. So so the Dalai Lama position on the Rohingya refugees in Myanmar would be that they should be just allowed to stay and and live and prosper in Myanmar. Is that his position? Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I've actually read a position that he's taken on that, but I know more generally, more generally that he's he's um, he's said any kind of person, any any a sort of a religious terrorist is a contradiction in terms. I think is one of his his, his sayings. You, you can't be a religious, a genuine religious practitioner and a terrorist at the same time because. Um, uh, someone who is, in his view, a genuine religious practitioner is someone who's committed to the highest principles of those spiritual traditions. And when you really, when you really peel it all back, um, the the highest principles are wisdom, compassion, and uh, and love. Really. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, a couple of things on the Dalai Lama. I sent you some articles. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, let me just find one here. Um, <coughs> The Dalai Lama on praying after terrorist attacks. Uh, oh, yeah. The terrorist attacks in Paris. He said, um, it is illogical. God would say, solve it yourself. Does that sound right? <laughs> does, that, does, that, does that sound like the Dalai Lama? Don't bother uh, praying, just solve it yourself? <laughs> what, what he was... Um, the, the, yeah, what he was getting at there was to say that um, for, for Buddhists... Uh, who don't believe in the intercession of a creator God, what he's getting at there is to say, well, the cause of the problem lies within, that is, the hatred, the greed, the, the nationalism, the ethnic tensions. Um, what you really need to do is work on that. It's not that God is going to come down and suddenly magically transform your heart from ethnic hatred into um, sort of love of all hum humankind, for example. Mm. That's, that, that kind of hard work has to start from within. So you're, you're probably better off, if you're really seeking some immediate change, you're probably better off trying to work on your own hardness of heart rather than, rather than sort of pray for some sort of supernatural intervention. I think he got the right answer, but he, he, his position would be that there is no God anyway, so praying yeah, would be... Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, he would, um, yeah, he would, well, he, he would never come out and say, you're, you're wrong, Christians, it's a waste of time praying to God. He'd never, I mean, he'd never come out and say that sort of thing. It's just uh, really disrespectful. But what he would come out and say is that um, in his experience and in his perspective, certainly from a Buddhist perspective, um, it would be better if you're seeking some sort of change for these things to to work on your own motivations and and uh, qualities rather than seek some kind of supernatural intervention. 
Mm. See, we've mentioned the Dalai Lama three times on the podcast over the previous 88 episodes, so I've dug out oh, the yeah, right. articles here, Alex. So this is good that you can sort of, you know, give feedback on whether this uh, is possibly <laughs> true or not. So... Uh, yeah, well, as you know, uh, yep, yeah, because you know, as uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, you know, don't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> exactly right, dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, "Wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys." If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. So um, this one, uh, speaking to German reporters, the Dalai Lama apparently said, uh, too many refugees are seeking asylum in Europe. Um, uh, Europe... For example, Germany cannot become an Arab country, he said with a laugh. Uh, Germany is Germany. There are so many refugees that in practice it becomes difficult. Um, does it sound like Dalai Lama sort of statements? <clears throat> yeah, well, that came from um, a report from the Washington Post on the 31st of May last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've, I've traced back the um, the Washington Post article and had a look. And they've they've certainly extracted parts of it, but... Um, what they what they went on to say is that um, the reason why um, refugees in Germany should be temporary is so that um, the goal should be they can help they return and rebuild their countries. Mm. And so he went on to say that. Uh, he, in fact, he quoted. He, he came and said, "When we look into the face of every single refugee, especially the children and women, we can feel their suffering. And the goal should be that they return and help rebuild their countries." So what he's saying is that while it's very unfortunate that there is a refugee crisis, um, the goal should be not that they permanently are displaced from their country, but that the conflicts that caused them to flee in the first place should be resolved quickly so they can go home. Mm. That's fair enough. Um, One other quote here, last one. Yeah. Um, If a female Dalai Lama comes, their face (laughs) should be very attractive. That female must be very attractive, otherwise not much use. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh dear yeah um so, so just a bit of old-fashioned pub talk <clears throat> from the dalai lama okay so i've got to unpack this a little bit because i know i know why i know sort of know i think i know where this is coming from um in the in the tibetan buddhist tradition there is a, a great emphasis on being able to help people through teaching them and being able to um assist them and guide them and to be a source of refuge for them. And because they also believe in rebirth, uh, they say that human nature being what it is, we tend to be attracted to people who are superficially attractive. You know, mm-hmm. when we listen to someone talking, if they're very good looking, if they're very presentable, if they're very eloquent, a wonderful voice, we tend to listen more and are more captivated by what they say. Just human nature being what it is. They've done studies of babies that when, when shown attractive people, babies will look at the attractive person longer than they would an unattractive person. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Wow. Um, prior to any well, they, sort of social 
norms being imposed on them, they just naturally will be oh, attracted right. to a symmetrical face and, and oh, yeah, faces right. with a characteristic that we would normally consider attractive. Hmm. Right. So what, what he's getting at there is um, a long, long-standing sort of view in the ancient Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist tradition that um, if, you, uh, if, if you cultivate um, ethics and if you cultivate patience and other good qualities, which is said in the tradition to result in a more attractive kind of rebirth or to naturally result in a more pleasant personality and disposition, then you're going to be able to be in a position to help more people who naturally seem to be attracted to people who are better looking and patient. So when he's, when he's saying... When he's saying the Dalai Lama, the future Dalai Lama, if she's born a woman, she'd better be attractive. What he's getting at there is to say that human nature being what it is, she can probably do a lot, a lot more good in um, uh, teaching and helping people and uh, reaching people who are superficially attracted to more superficial things. Alex, that is a superb answer. That's <laughs> on a hairy question. That is a great answer. Well, well done. Yeah. Um, now, uh, one of your so I think we'll move off. Uh, well, I'm saying we're going to move off um, Buddhism, but perhaps we're not because one of your other interests is animal rights, and you've written some oh yeah textbooks on animal rights. And um, I, I sort of um, in preparation for this, Alex said if you could change one thing in relation to animal rights, what would it be? Do, do you have anything in mind, or is there anything that we're doing terribly wrong in Australia or elsewhere? <laughs> oh God, yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, so. Yes, I, I do teach. Um, I do teach animal law at uh, at the ANU, and it's in fact tomorrow I'm flying to Barcelona to teach for a week as part of their um, master's program in animal law, and uh, one of the uh, one of the topics that I'll be teaching, uh, or two topics that I'll be teaching, one one involves um, whaling in the Southern Ocean Sanctuary in the Southern Oceans, and the second involves live exports. And I think um, both of those industries need to be shut down pretty bloody quickly. Right. So I uh, I think the the cost benefit or the the cruelty benefit just in no way is uh, is commensurate or equivalent. So if there's one thing that I could change, at least in Australia, it would be to have um, the live export industry shut down pretty quickly and globally to have whaling sort of shut down. But I guess more broadly or generally is to rethink our relationship with um, with animals particularly. Mm-hmm. Very good. So yeah. that's good. And, um, and just, Alex, life in Oxford – like, it must, must <laughs> yeah. be amazing. Is it something out of Harry Potter? Is it, you know, bookshelves? Yeah, well, they did, yeah, they did film some of Harry Potter here. You know, they filmed, um, you know, in the Divinity School. They filmed in Christchurch College and they filmed around the street. Yeah, they, they filmed a bit, a bit of Harry Potter here in, uh, in Oxford. So, it is a little bit like that. It's, it's a strange place, Trevor. I mean, it's, it's 900 years old and the, the most, they're the most bright, you know, smartest people in the world are here. It's quite incredible. Yes. Just to sit and sit in a coffee shop and to sort of eavesdrop on conversations when you hear these most amazing things being discussed. So, you know, there's a guy here um, on a um, United Nations scholarship studying medicine after he designed drones to take vaccines that he developed himself to remote African villages that are unsafe for UN aid workers to go to. I mean, wow. not only... Not only did he design the vaccine, not only did he create the vaccines, but he also designed the 
computer program to guide the drones to these places. There's a girl here who um, uh, is a she's doing a doctorate in refugee studies, but she's also a former principal ballerina with some European ballet company. And she started up a chain of ballet schools to help underprivileged children across war-torn Balkan states. I mean, yes. it's, a, it's just it's just. I mean, you think about what the hell have I done with my life? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yes. it's just amazing. There's some it's just, amazing it's, people out there. Oh, yeah, it really is. It's a real privilege to sort of be here. But, you know, it's a, we're, we're quite spoiled in Australia, Trevor. We've got wonderful sunshine and, you know, despite the heat and the cyclones every now and again, but we've got fresh fruit and vegetables on tap. We've got wonderful resources it's an easygoing sort of lifestyle and it's uh there are there are good things wonderful things about australia absolutely wonderful things have you detected while you're there this um sort of class difference in in the uk you know are, you know you're not from the right class alex so time won't be spent with you is is that have you seen that oh uh, yeah 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 this um there was only one explicit um encounter with that when Someone at a reception said, "Oh, someone from the colonies! How wonderful!" And that kind of. <laughs> and he, he was kind of he was kind of joking, but he wasn't. If you know yes. what I mean. Yes. Uh, and and then it exists in more subtle forms. So you can buy different classes of tickets on the trains to go down to London or travel around England, or if you go to the movies, you can buy different classes of seating. You know that yes. kind of thing. Yes. So it exists. It exists more subtly, but. Um, unfortunately, over here, like many Western nations, the government is um, privatizing and decentralizing and defunding a lot of social care uh, systems. And so suddenly we're having over here, like there's a lot more homeless people, a lot more mentally ill people on the streets, a lot more alcohol abuse and drug abuse um, people on the streets who can no longer see government assisted um, programs to help them because of these austerity drives. Yes. So it's um, it's becoming... It's becoming a quite a grim, grim thing. There are really two Oxfords here, Trevor. There's the Oxford of the privileged people like me, yes. and then there are <clears throat> then there are the uh, the people who are on the streets and struggling and and having a very difficult time. And the yes. the difference is quite jarring at times. Yep. Now you would stand out. Now, dear listener, um, being an audio podcast here, um, you may not realise, but. Alex, you wear traditional Buddhist monk robes everywhere yeah, that's right. now? <clears throat> yeah. yeah, pretty much everywhere, yeah. yeah. And you've been doing they're, that they're, since you were ordained, ordained. as a monk? Is that yeah, that's right. Yep. yep, yep, that's right. So, um, so any I, yeah, discrimination that you faced when you started donning the robes in Australia? And uh, <laughs> how did that go down? Because you were um, you were working for the ACCC at the time. and <clears throat> yeah, 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 that's right high-flying lawyer and one day you're in a suit and the next you're in in robes yeah, robes. <laughs> yeah. um happily happily everyone at work was really quite um uh understanding and they were very committed to sort of that religious diversity principle and that kind of thing uh, of course there was no problem at all from the university's perspective they had no trouble whatsoever yes. um and i have to say in about 90 percent of the cases it's just been fine no problem um however i do find um sometimes i've had trouble with i'm sorry to say this uh tradies and football yobbos and who who sometimes feel that um 
imperative to comment on my parental heritage or my sexual orientation or <laughs> that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, of course, it's it's fine. I, I find people are often very curious as well, and so they'll come up and ask me questions or all sorts of things. So mm. it's fine. The only thing is, you can never have a bad day. You can never sort of if you're in robes and you're out and about, you can never have a bad day because people, oh my God, you said that? What? Right. <laughs> you know, because you're representing the Buddhist community at all times. So yeah, yeah, right. yeah. You just got to be pretty careful, mindful. Mindful. So how long will it? How long will you be there for? What do you think? Oh, well, I'm. I'll be here for three years. So right. the the, doc, the doctoral program is for three years, and I've been here since um, October last year. And uh, so after the, the academic year in Oxford runs from October to October, and <clears throat> I uh, I'll be here until October 2019 or 2020 or whatever it is. Right. Well, you may not realise it, Alex, but you're now p- a, an official member of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast team, and <laughs> I'm going to be calling on you at regular intervals. Absolutely. Uh, in future, we you know we've. We've discussed Buddhism, but we'll move on to just world events and other stuff as well. Sure, um, cool. and sure. I mean, happy to. We're fascinated with religion here, and you're easily the most qualified person I know to comment on different religions. So, do you know much about Islam before we go on? Have you? No. Right. No, I know. I know nothing about Islam and very little about Judaism. Right. So I'm afraid that um, my expertise is uh, is very limited. In fact, I, I probably wouldn't feel terribly confident in commenting on uh, on any other religion except um, Buddhism and Christianity, I think. Well, it hasn't stopped me commenting, but um, uh, <laughs> good on you, Alex. So, no, we will definitely be um, taking advantage of your expertise um, in the sure. future and uh, waking you up at the early hours and getting you on Skype. So, um, so stay oh. on the line, Alex. Um, yeah. Dear listener, I hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, with Venerable Alex and uh, join us again next week. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show so if you go to our website you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, 
you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.